Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 14 and beginning in verse 13 and reading until the end of the chapter. And I invite you once again to turn there and to follow along as I read. Paul says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him... It is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. If you have been with us over the course of our study, then you know that we have, for the last many weeks now, been examining the outworking of the gospel in the lives of those who have come to Christ in genuine faith. And since the beginning of this chapter 14, we have been looking at a specific issue that Paul is aware of that has been troubling the saints in Rome, and he has been providing them with wise counsel as to how they should navigate these stormy waters and maintain the peace within their fellowship. We have discerned that the problem has largely centered on the issue of dietary restrictions and have deduced that within this congregation of both Jew and Gentile, there are those who believe that certain meats need to be avoided in order to live faithfully under God. Some of these are Jewish believers for whom Old Testament ceremonial restrictions remain in place according to their understanding. But there are also some Gentile believers who see in certain meats a defilement connected to those meats having been offered as a sacrifice 
to their former pagan idols. Now, both of these groups have sworn off the consumption of these meats as they seek to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. But there are also some, more than likely from among these who have some issues with the eating of certain meats, who have sworn off the consumption of all meats entirely because for them the safest path forward is to simply become vegetarian to avoid making a religious mistake that might have eternal consequences. Now all these Paul labels as being weak in the faith, not with any sense of derision, but simply to point out that there is a lack of theological understanding among these that requires consideration from those he sees as being strong in the faith. Those who are strong in the faith, Paul sees as having a better grasp of the liberty that is ours in Christ Jesus, who abolished the ceremonial law by satisfying all the demands of the law. And when Christ accomplished that, he rendered the ceremonial law moot. In other words, once the ceremonial law was fully satisfied, there was no longer any purpose left for following it. By the same token, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God the Father demonstrated that there is no God but him and that the Son of God is the only one worthy of receiving our worship. So any sacrifices made unto idols is also meaningless, for they are not gods at all. There's only one who has conquered death in the grave and proven that he reigns over all that is. Now we noted last week that the trouble in Rome centered around the weak brother, being inclined to judge the stronger brother because he would see the stronger brother eating meat without any care for what it was or where it came from, and the weaker brother was condemning such a lifestyle. In his mind, this was a sinful disregard for what he believed God had ordained. On the flip side... The stronger brother was inclined to treat the weaker brother with disdain, reasoning that he was ignorant of the full implications of the gospel that he was claiming to believe. And so there was a level of impatience and disregard for the weaker brother's perspective, and it was creating a certain tension within the fellowship in Rome. And as we came to a close last week, the apostle made the point that we needed to put this entire issue in its proper context, which is that each of us needs to realize that we will be called upon at the day of judgment to give an account of ourselves before Christ, not with regard to our salvation, but with regard to how we have lived as his disciples. Now again, let us not confuse our justification with sanctification. The judgment day will have absolutely no effect upon those who have come to Christ in genuine faith. That judgment has been settled. Jesus declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
but as his disciples, we will give an account for what we have done in service to him. And depending upon that, will be rewarded accordingly. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So when Paul brings up the judgment here, he is saying to these Roman disciples that they need to approach this non-essential issue with an eye towards the ultimate goal. Now, as I said last time, Paul is not completely finished with the argument that he is making concerning these non-essential issues. And as we come to verse 13, he is drawing a conclusion. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now this is an admonition to both the weak brother as well as the strong brother. As we said before, the weaker brother was inclined towards making judgments, but the stronger brother was guilty of treating the weaker brother with disdain. And one of the ways that may have manifested itself is by flaunting his freedom in Christ in front of the weaker brother, which was a potential stumbling block for him. And so Paul is making an appeal to both brothers. He is saying in light of the fact that there is only one who is capable of making a right judgment in regard to these issues, let us leave the judgment to him. Instead of that, let us focus on not doing anything that will cause our brothers in Christ to stumble and fall or in any way be an impediment to their full development as a disciple of Christ. Now, this is an important principle for the church in any time and any place. If believers were more concerned about the spiritual development of their brothers and sisters in Christ and less concerned about whether or not they are doctrinally right, the church would be in a better position to proclaim the gospel. As I have said over the years, no one is saved by having perfect doctrine. Now, is doctrine important? Absolutely. It's critically important. But should my perfect doctrine be asserted at the expense of the spiritual welfare of my brother or sister in Christ? Absolutely not. Because at that point, verses from 1 Corinthians 13 begin to resonate in my mind. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, there's a fine line that must be considered when dealing with some of these issues because it can stray from being very right to being very wrong if it fails to consider the spiritual well-being of my brother in Christ. Now again, this depends in part upon the issue. Paul is thinking here of non-essential Issues. He's not thinking about issues that would rob the gospel of its power and truth. He's thinking about issues that whether you believe one way or the other, it matters not to God, but to some Christians, it would disturb their conscience if they were to behave in a certain way. And this matter of their conscience is important. Paul indicates here that he personally knows that there is nothing that is inherently unclean in and of itself. God did not create certain things as unclean. All that God created, He created good. God did, for the purposes of training His people, the Jews, teach them to regard some things as common and other things as being set aside for holy purposes and some things as being unclean that needed to be avoided so as to not defile themselves when they approached his presence. But those things were not inherently unclean. God was teaching them to understand their spiritual condition as sinners as well as his holy character. It didn't have anything to do with pork. It didn't have anything to do with certain classes of seafood. It had to do with the fact that he was holy, 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 and they were spiritually unclean and in need of a Savior. So, Paul says that while he understands that there's nothing unclean in and of itself, he also understands that there are brothers in the faith who do not have that understanding. And for them, these foods are unclean. For them to consume them will violate their conscience, and so we need to be very careful in how we conduct ourselves when we are around them, because we run the risk of destroying him for whom Christ died. You see, as the stronger brother, it does not cost Paul anything to bear with the younger brother. If Paul has to abstain from eating meat Whenever he's in the company of the weaker brother, what sacrifice has he really had to make? I mean, I realize if he really had his heart set on a good barbecue pork sandwich and then he had to wait, it might be something of an annoyance, but it doesn't cost him anything substantive. But if he disregards the concerns of the weaker brother and he proceeds to consume that pork sandwich in his presence, it will have deleterious repercussions. 
For even though it will not be an evil thing in and of itself, it will be labeled that way and it will be spoken of that way. And so Paul says, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. How often have we heard criticisms leveled at some prominent figure, not for what they did, but for the way in which they did it? And Paul is urging the stronger brother to tread carefully, not because the eating of these meats is wrong, because it is not, but because the way in which they choose to do so may bring disrepute upon them as well as upon the gospel. Paul reminds them that the kingdom of God is not wrapped up in such non-essential issues as this. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Years ago, one of our associate pastors preached a sermon from this pulpit entitled, The Main Thing is to Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. And that's what Paul is reminding the stronger brothers to remember here. If the fellowship of believers in Rome become entangled in a controversy over the eating of certain meats, they will fail to be about the business of the kingdom of God, which is proclaiming the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus and the peace between God and man that God has established through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, and the joy that is ours when we begin to fathom the reality of there being now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. One of the disarming techniques of the evil one is to sidetrack the church with non-essential issues to the point that the main thing is no longer the main thing. So then, Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now this word that Paul uses for upbuilding is a favorite of his. Of the 18 occurrences that we find of it in the New Testament, Paul uses it 15 of those times, and it literally refers to the construction of a house or of a building. And so he is speaking metaphorically here, but the picture that it creates is worthy of our full attention. Paul recognizes that disciples are not fully formed in a day. Yes, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into His kingdom of marvelous light in a single moment. But what follows then is a lifelong journey to the celestial city. And along that way, we will make many mistakes and missteps and will require correction and discipline and much instruction and teaching. And even then, we will still have much to learn. Paul is redirecting our attention to these things that are far more important than the non-essential issues that sometimes sidetrack us. He is redirecting us to think about those things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. You see, when invitations are made to join a Bible study or to attend prayer meetings, or to serve on a committee, or a commission, or to volunteer in some capacity. Those are invitations to grow in your faith and understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. 
Those opportunities are designed to build one another up in the Lord. They are not designed to keep you busy. They are designed to feed your soul. To help you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling that will edify you as well as those with whom you fellowship. And if your reaction to those opportunities is to think, well, you know, that doesn't really interest me or I'm just way too busy to be doing any of that. That should give you pause because it may mean that the main thing is no longer the main thing in your life. Or if it does not attract you because you are quite content with how far you think you have come in the faith, you might want to reevaluate whether you are in the faith at all. You see, true disciples are called not to take up their couch and follow Him, but to take up their cross and follow Him all the way to the end. For the disciples of Christ to be involved in mutual upbuilding means that we are in active fellowship with one another. How many times have we called attention to those first disciples who were devoted to four things? They were constantly about the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And this is the appeal that Paul is making when he urges these Roman believers to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Now what's interesting about this Greek word that's translated here as pursue is that it carries with it a kind of zealousness because it is the same word that is translated in other places as persecute. When Paul speaks of his life before Christ and how he persecuted, how he pursued the church, it is this same word that is translated here as pursue. To pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding is not a casual ho-hum, maybe if I have some time attempt at it. It is a fervent and zealous pursuit of it with an eye towards making the capture. Now, Does that describe our devotion to these main things? And if not, then what will we do about it? You see, if congregations were to devote themselves to these main things, then the non-essential issues would come to be perceived as what they truly are, non-essential. And we would immediately recognize them as differences of opinion that one is free to exercise if you would like, but which do not pose any real threat to the fellowship. At the same time, congregations that have devoted themselves to the main things will readily recognize when there is a brother or a sister for whom some issue has grown out of all proportion and requires some tender loving care to lead them to a better understanding of the implications of Christ's atoning work. And so let us heed Paul's admonition here and no longer pass judgment on one another, but rather let us pursue those things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for a moment today.